following program has the potential, dare I say, probability to give offense. It's Friday, July 17th, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, we have a different show. It's The Gist, just a different format. I'm giving the entire show over to a longer than usual discussion, a debate, if you will, on the subject of fairness, hearings, harm, and the Harper's Letter. So you probably know that over 150 thinkers and teachers and journalists signed a letter in Harper's Magazine that said, we as a culture are being overly censorial and censorious when it comes to encountering opinions we don't like. Now, since then, you've probably heard all the back and forth about whether that was fair, whether that was just elites wanting to escape accountability, whether it's just a case of the traditional gatekeepers not liking the construction and placement of the gates. I heard the back and forth, too. But here's the thing. I never heard it in the same place at the same time. This debate about the debate was not being held in anything resembling a debate. Oh, there are lots of opinions and so many, many outlets where you could hear every flavor and gradation of the discussion, but never as a discussion between two parties. In my Twitter feed, I heard the Dispatch and the National Review and Commentary and the Adam Carolla Show and Joe Rogan and Useful Idiots and Blocked and Reported and Citations Needed and the Press Box all talking about it. Those discussions were interesting in one way or another to listen to. And some of the discussions were of people who supported the Harper's letter and some were of people who did not. But you know what? None of those discussions included both arguments in the same place at the same time, opposing voices responding to each other's points. So I had to cast about and seek out the arguments from both sides and then in my mind match them up, say, well, David French said this on the dispatch, but Brian Curtis on the press box said something pretty opposite. I wonder what each would say to the other. It's like I'm an outsider artist engaged in a form of argumentation collage. It's kind of frustrating. I can look at the lack of literal disagreement over the idea that we're terrible at disagreeing, and I can feel vindicated because that's exactly how I define what the problem is. I could look at it with frustration, though, because it's obviously a failing of the media, maybe even culture or people, that we can't get the two sides together. I could look at it sociologically or journalistically and note that there used to be a lot more ideological heterogeneity in media circles so that it once wouldn't have been so hard to have a reasoned disagreement about an issue that everyone is talking about. Or I could look at it as I did opportunistically. I think podcasts are great at fostering in-depth discussion, even among non-like-minded participants. So I went out and had my own discussion. All right, who to cast as the participants? Harper sent me a nice list of 153 names to hit up, It's going to be kind of hard to get J.K. Rowling. But on the list were such past guests of the gist as Steven Pinker and Malcolm Gladwell and David Frum. Thing is, you can't just pair one of these luminaries with any old critic of the letter. Like, say, I tapped one of the hosts of the Citations Needed podcast. And so on this list, you also have, you know, Steven Pinker and Malcolm Gladwell and David Frum and Francis Fukuyama who rightly should be canceled forever. (laughs) Nima Shirazi there explaining why it's ridiculous for anyone to be concerned over so-called cancel culture. Okay, maybe he's not the best voice to invite to this discussion, at least based on the discussion he was having about the Harper's letter a week ago. The idea that Barry Weiss 
is concerned with those who don't have power being able to speak their minds is ridiculous. She's concerned with her power to keep her job when her boss was just fired for being a shithead. She wants to keep her job because she doesn't want to be the next one at the guillotine. Okay, so who to invite on? Well, we have two stellar participants in this discussion. For the affirmative that illiberalism is real and pernicious, increasingly among the left, is Yasha Monk, not just a scholar, a signatory of the letter, and a journalist. He's now dedicating much of his professional life to this very issue because he has founded Persuasion, a journalistic enterprise dedicated to the proposition that a free society is worth fighting for. But on the other side, arguing that the current fretting over the left shutting down debate is very rare and often even justified, is Osito Wanevu of the New Republic. This is the whole show, Yasha and Osita, and a little bit of me, up next. A week ago, 153 public intellectuals signed an open letter to Harper's Magazine that decried illiberalism within traditionally liberal discourse. You've probably read about this letter on justice and open debate, even if you aren't crazy enough to have a Google alert set for the phrases public intellectual, open letter, or Harper's Magazine. So a lot of people, you may have heard, disagreed with this letter and disagreed strongly, sometimes disagreeing so strongly that a few of the letter's signatories said, well, that makes my point. No, that misses the point, argued the objectors, some of whom signed their own letter, which focused extensively on trans rights, a topic that literally was not mentioned, though perhaps implied in the original Harper's argument. So while we have all seen so much back and forth about this, one thing that I haven't seen and literally haven't heard is back and forth in the same place between and among different sides of the debate. Luckily, I have a podcast. So with that in mind, I wanted to invite on for a debate, or let's call it a structured disagreement. I assume it's going to be a disagreement. Who knows how this thing ends up? Two important and intelligent people. Joining me is Yasha Monk. He is an associate professor at Johns Hopkins, a contributor to The Atlantic, the founder of Persuasion, a publication and community for, let's say, people who felt the Harper's letter spoke to their concerns. He signed the letter. Also joining me is Osito Wanevu, who's a staff writer at The New Republic, and whose recent article, The Willful Blindness of Reactionary Liberalism, is the most frequently cited critique of the Harper's letter, and often even by some of the people who signed the letter itself. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, let's start with a term that never appears in the Harper's letter, and that term is cancel culture. But so much of the argument has been about cancel culture. And Yasha, I'll start with you. How much of the backlash against the letter was a backlash against the idea of canceling and debating what canceling means and who really gets canceled, which I think it seems was studiously avoided by the composer of the letter? Uh, yeah, so as you're saying, the letter doesn't say cancel culture, and I'm not sure how helpful a term it is. The thing that uh, certainly made me sign the letter, and that I think a lot of the people who signed the letter are concerned about, is that we absolutely want robust disagreement. The idea that some people put out there that we're just afraid of being criticized on the internet and therefore signed a letter, which we knew would be heavily criticized on the internet, uh, is frankly a little bit silly. But what we are concerned about are some of the cases that I've reported on for The Atlantic. What we are concerned about are things like 
Emmanuel Cafferty, a Latino man in San Diego, who was fired from his job as an electrician uh, because somebody thought that he was making an okay gesture, which is being uh, appropriated by trolls on the internet as a kind of white supremacist gesture. Uh, this man has no interest in politics, complete normie, uh, so to say, uh, has never voted in a presidential election, is himself Latino, and he was fired for supposedly being a white supremacist. Um, I think those kinds of cases are a travesty of justice. Um, and this has greater importance, not because the signatories of this letter, uh, many of whom have relatively comfortable positions in the world, are hurt by critiques of them or are afraid of what they can say, uh, but because there are both a lot of people with less power and privilege in the world who are afraid to actually speak their mind. And this is something that should matter to readers. It is something that should matter to listeners of your podcast. Because you want the people who are your guide to the world, the people who write about the world to you, to actually see things uh, as they see them, rather than uh, talking about them as they think uh, their colleagues at work or their editor uh, or the prevailing opinion on one corner of Twitter wants them to see the world. Uh, just as a general statement, I think I should say off the top, I think it's interesting that my piece has been cited as a response to the Harper's letter when it in fact came out, I believe, a day before the Harper's letter was even published. I had no idea it was being written. But I think what that ultimately says is that people felt that what I wrote spoke to the concerns that were voiced in that letter in this entire discourse in an interesting way. I think that there are important and complicated issues to discuss. I'm not one of the people who has said cancel culture isn't a real thing. I just think that there are certain ways in which this discourse has been unbalanced for reasons I think should be explored. As Yasha has written for The Atlantic, I think it's true that there are ordinary people who are finding themselves the subject of social media controversy uh, or who've been canceled or put out for bad reasons, from my perspective. And I think those cases are worth talking about. But I think ultimately, though, in moments of large-scale cultural change, when you have opinions changing on a number of issues that are important really, really rapidly, you're going to see some overzealotry. You're going to see some people treated unfairly, and you're going to see people saying and doing pretty wild things. That was true during the civil rights movement. That was true during the anti-Vietnam movement. That was true during every major social movement that we've come to respect uh, now. My first problem is that cancellation, or whatever you want to call it, this kind of censoriousness that people are referring to, is being characterized as a crisis that is sweeping American society. I think if you added up all the anecdotes you can find about this, I'd be surprised if people getting canned for being unwoke on social media or in their personal lives amounted to even one-tenth of one percent of the people fired in a normal year in this country. That's not to say that these cases, again, aren't worth talking about or exploring. But nobody's actually measured this in any kind of rigorous way. Nobody really seems to think that we should before declaring it a social contagion. My other problem is that this seems to be a discourse focused mostly on progressives in a way that implies that progressives are worse or attitudinally dif different or more censorious than other people. And I don't think that's really well-founded. I think it's pretty historical. I mean, I ultimately think that building that impression is intentional. I think it's one of the points of this discourse. I think that this discourse exists as a kind of proxy war against progressive identity politics. Instead of a discussion about the actual ideas in question that they're putting forward, we're having a discourse that is, I think, aimed at discrediting progressives as totalitarian and crazy and not worth taking seriously. 
Yasha, is your contention that a lot of people are being fired, like uh, the person you wrote about who works for San Diego Gas and Electric? I mean, I suppose that a very small percentage, probably less than 1% of all the firings, were explicitly because someone is African-American, yet uh, I think we would all say we should take that seriously. But my question, though, Yasha, is do you think it's the size or the symbolism of this phenomenon or the slope where it could be going? Yeah, let me let, let me say two things in, in response to Asita's very, very reasonable concerns. The first is that obviously there's cancel culture on the right. Uh, and obviously, by the way, Donald Trump is trying to restrict freedom of speech in very real uh, and very dangerous ways. Um, I argued and was criticized for arguing by many people on the right that uh, populism and right-wing populism remain the most uh, acute threats to liberal democracy today. Now, what I find striking is that uh, the, the very obviously terrible effect that right-wing political correctness has had on the ability of people on the right of center to talk honestly about the world, to see the world accurately, to criticize bad actors within their own ranks is a sign for us to talk less about similar dangers on the left rather than more. Clearly, if we see just how disastrous this has been for the political space right of center, those of us who are left of center should be all the more determined to ensure that something similar doesn't take hold here. Now, the, the second point uh, that, that I want to make, Mike, in response to your question is that I think there's actually a lot of cases uh, and, you know, you can go in, on Twitter and find you know, dozens and dozens of these cases. I don't think it's at all a, a negligible number of cases. And I always get a little bit nervous when we say, well, this, this is just a few cases. Let's tolerate those because of the sort of larger cause behind it. I think we can build a just society without giving up and sacrificing innocent individuals uh, along the way. But I think most importantly, it is absolutely about the chilling effect. You know, I have an email in my inbox every day from somebody who says, you know, I want to make this very reasonable point and I'm afraid of doing that or I'm being punished in various ways for doing that. If you talk to writers at every major newspaper and magazine in this country, they say, you know, if I talk about topic X, I get to write whatever I want. As soon as I want to talk about topic Y, uh, suddenly everybody is so scared that the article never sees the light of day or it's so mutilated that I don't recognize it as being in my own uh, voice at all. So, uh, you know, if you go out and talk to some of the people who are most read in this country, and many young people who are, you know, in junior staff positions at places like Slate, at places like the New York Times, at places like the New Republic. I have talked to people at all of these institutions. Uh, they are telling me I cannot say honestly, publicly what I believe. And that's something that should make readers incensed. Because you go to those publications in order to get the honest view of what the people who you trust actually believe. And they are privately telling each other, I don't get to tell you what I actually believe. And by the way, these views aren't, uh, you know, they're not secret Trumpists. They're not secret bigots. Uh, they simply diverge in one point or another from the progressive orthodoxy. Uh, I want to make two points. And first, returning to this question on whether this is happening to ordinary people and how many cases there are. I think the actual number measured in a rigorous way is important because there's a way you can have this discourse where you're saying, let's take this or that case seriously and adjudicate or try to figure out whether this was justified, right? And that is the way you can frame this discourse. And I think the way that it has been predominantly framed, where you say, there is something sweeping American society that we need to all sit up and pay attention to. I think that second claim 
requires a burden of proof that hasn't really been met. You can say that there have been dozens of cases where people have been fired for not having the right opinions. Dozens of cases within the scope of American society is nothing. One-tenth of one percent of the number of people who are fired in a given year, I think 20 million people lost their jobs in 2016, is 20,000 people. If you can find 20,000 cases, one-tenth of one percent of people who are being fired in this country because their opinions were not sufficiently progressive, I think that then we could have a real conversation. I think that one-tenth of one percent seems like a good starting point. But if you're relying on viral anecdotes that come to you via Twitter, I think that people have to be a little bit skeptical about the scope and reach of the analysis. One of the other issues I have with this discourse is that people in national media seem a little too myopic to understand that there are different spheres of discourse and different spheres of ideology in this country. I'm sure it's very difficult for somebody to be openly woke or transgender or a black activist and retain certain jobs in Arkansas or South Dakota, right? But we have a discourse that isn't terribly interested in those people, in part because we're not terribly interested in Arkansas and South Dakota in national media. But if something happens to a professor at Yale or a columnist at the New York Times, or the progressives those people believe are on the march do something wrong, we're definitely, definitely going to hear about it, right? There are different spheres and arenas of American life, and the fact that a group or an idea is gaining influence in one of them doesn't actually mean that they're taking over society. And you can say, well, certain things and people are gaining a foothold within putatively influential institutions, but influential institutions, that's not a universal thing. There are parts of the country where the New York Times is dirt. So I think a lot of what's happening should be understood as a conflict within particular geographic, culture, and ideological sections of America. Anybody can say anything that they want in this country. But the people who are complaining about cancel culture in liberal media or within elite universities are complaining not because their right to speak or express themselves has been infringed in any kind of concrete way, but because in addition to free speech, they also believe they're entitled to the respect and attention of liberals and progressives. They want to be able to speak out on certain things without people saying to them, well, I think your position's immoral or beyond the pale or out of date, and for that reason, I don't want to hear from you anymore, or I don't think you should be at this university or at this newspaper. And again, I think we can talk about the merits and demerits of those particular cases and their substance, but I think it's an act of misdirection to say, as many people have, that what we're fundamentally talking about is free expression or free speech. The thing that's actually happening to me is that people who've chosen professions or institutions aimed at appealing to liberals and progressives now find themselves on the outs because liberal and progressive opinion is changing, which is a thing that happens <laughs> in ideologies. Ideologies change. New critics and with new values enter discourse. But people are threatened by this. And you know, you have to sort of transmogrify this into a conflict that is about liberalism or some at some level of abstraction that is removed from the thing that people are actually debating, in my eyes. So, 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 so the question is, what do we actually want discourse to look like in the United States? And you said, oh, well, you know, some of these people, they just made the mistake of going into spheres of life where they're now subject uh, to those progressive pressures and, you know, just let them go over to the right. Um, I mean, first of all, I think we shouldn't wish for people who are part of our coalition to go over to the right, because the most important thing in this year of 2020 is that we win an election against Donald Trump and make sure that people with views that we both find abhorrent don't continue to hold uh, actual political power in this country. Uh, but it's also a very strange view of what the purpose of a university is. Um, and sure, uh, you know, somebody getting fired from a position at a university is not an infringement of the United States Constitution, but it is a very serious abridgment 
of some norms and some freedoms that we want to defend for good reason. It's all well and good to talk broadly about free speech, but I think that people understand that there's something more complicated happening here. And I think there's a very good example of this outside of the universities that we can talk about that emerged last week. Uh, if you were to ask anybody who engages in cancel culture discourse, do you think it is okay for somebody to make controversial remarks in a private forum, to have those remarks discovered by an anonymous tipster who goes to a major news outlet, to have those remarks published by that outlet, and to see that person lose their jobs for making statements that most people disagree with and find objectionable, but that millions of people in this country don't actually have a problem with? I think most people would say, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good example of cancel culture. That's what happened to Blake Neff at Fox News, right? He, he made remarks in his private life that were racist and objectionable, and he lost his job for it. Now, you, you know, the response to people who bring this up has generally been, well, look, you shouldn't lump this in with other cases because Blake Neff is a racist. And this is where it gets sticky, right? Wouldn't you say it's okay for somebody to lose their job because they're a racist? The question then becomes, okay, what is racism, right? Who, what, is, what is sexism? What is transphobia? It becomes not a question of uh, speech and liberalism in the abstract with one side supporting liberalism and free discourse and the other side not supporting liberalism and free discourse. It's a question of where the lines are. And people are functionally going to disagree about that. And reasonable people are going to disagree about that. And I don't really think it makes sense for people to say, well, because you drew your line somewhere else, you're illiberal, even though you and I believe in the validity of the same basic action. I think that people in liberal society have the freedom to disagree about those decisions and define their values and affiliations as narrowly and as openly uh, as they'd like. To Yasha's point about wouldn't this lead to a, a society where everybody's on the left or on the right and there's no in between? You know, I'm not prescribing that, and I'm not saying that that, you know, is an ideal outcome. And I don't really think that's particularly likely. Yasha has just started up a project where he is going to bring people on who are aligned with his values, and there are people who thinks are not going to be <laughs> aligned with those values, we're not going to be brought on. And that's kind of the nature of discourse, right? There are, again, these different discursive spheres in American society, in all societies, where people have loose or tight affiliations, and, and things are messy, but ultimately, I don't know that it makes sense for the discourse to say that people utilizing freedom in a way that we find unproductive, or in a way that we think is worthy of criticism, to say that those people are then illiberal because we disagree with the way that they have chosen to define their organization. I think that's something that is aimed at shutting down discourse rather than allowing discourse to flourish. I think that's something, again, that is often hypocritically done against specific people with specific ideological priors. So, you know, obviously every newspaper has an editorial policy and has a set of ideas about what's within the realm of what can be debated and a set of ideas of things that they uh, won't allow to be debated. There's nothing wrong with that. There can nevertheless be uh, two concerns about the way in which that tends to play out at the moment, which I think are worth taking seriously. So the first is, that when uh, a, a writer or a journalist, uh, you know, agrees with, uh, you know, left of center opinion on 19 out of 20 issues or agrees with progressive opinion on 19 out of 20 issues, but on one out of those 20 issues, they have a principled disagreement that falls very far away from being a form of bigotry. They simply want to challenge uh, some assumption within the discourse. If that means that those views are hidden from the audience, 
then I think that'll make for worse newspapers. That's a small objection, but an important one if you're thinking about how places like the New York Times or Slate should be run. The second bigger problem is that uh, people aren't only criticized for that particular point of view. That particular point of view is not only debated, but then there's pressure to say, if they think that, then they should not have employment within these institutions. If they don't recant this view, then they are a bad human being and we should punish them. Uh, and that goes quite a lot further in creating a atmosphere of fear in which the people who create the public discourse uh, can never quite say what they believe because they're always afraid of falling on the wrong side of a line of which we don't exactly know where it falls. And you can see, as you've seen a few times in the last months and years, a public discourse in progressive spaces sh jumping from one received wisdom to another within a couple of days. And everybody moves with it because uh, the first wasn't really able to be challenged at one point and then something changed in the conflagration uh, and suddenly everybody believes the other thing. I don't think that that is uh, healthy uh, for, for us ourselves in these spaces. Uh, we should be very concerned about that. Well, so I, I think it's worth asking Yasha directly, you know, when it comes to, again, people holding controversial opinions and the extent to which progressives or maybe journalists, people in the media are deluding themselves if they think it's helpful to get rid of people who represent the views that exist out in the country. I, I just ask if you think that Blake Neff's firing or, I guess, resignation is an example of cancel culture. I don't see how, in the abstract, what happened departs that much from the other cases people have brought up, except for the fact that the content of his views mark him out as different in some kind of subjective way. Look, I never said that there aren't certain limits that we should draw. My point is that when the limits are drawn so narrowly and when you have to agree on such a large number of propositions in order to be in good standing, then we're stifling debate on our own side in a way that will make us deluded about the truth and incapable of convincing anybody uh, to actually vote for progressive and important causes. So I'm not going to say that there aren't uh, certain people in certain kinds of positions, it depends on the kind of position, uh, who express deeply bigoted views, who therefore should not be, you know, the chief writer for a huge television show. What, what I'm seeing in our spaces, though, is that people who agree with their friends and their peers and their colleagues on 19 out of 20 issues and have reasonable disagreements on the 20th issue, where I might fall on the other side of them, I might disagree with them, but it's not in any way... A, a, a bigoted point of view are then unpersoned and punished and yes, cancelled for the expression of those views. That has a chilling effect on our ability to talk honestly and energetically and truthfully about the world uh, that I think we should all be worried about. And by the way, if you really care about our ability to have us open debates, if you really care about freedom of speech, if you really care about a robust public discourse, then why are you so concerned about some people being overly worried about that. If I really care about sexism, and I think some people are over-ascribing uh, how much sexism there is in society, I don't think you're a terrible person for exaggerating how much sexism there is. I think, hey, you know what? 
I disagree with you on this. Good news. Perhaps there's a little bit of sexism than, than you think, but I agree with you that there is a lot of sexism and we should fight against it. All right. So I think that is functionally not what actually happens in this discourse. What we have in this discourse is people who say you are overly concerned about sexism or you're overly concerned about racism or you're overly concerned about transphobia. And therefore, your criticism of me is equivalent to the cultural revolution that happened under Mao. That is the discourse that we actually have, right? So I think it's it's important to actually recognize that and not sort of create in this <laughs> in this discussion an alternative universe that does not actually exist. Well, I don't know. So, so why is this but, an alternative but, universe? I'm one of the most visible people in this discourse. We've been talking for forty minutes. Why are you ascribing views to me? But I'm, but I'm, I'm but not I'm ascribing not any. I'm not. In fact, I'm saying that because there are people who are not you, Yasha, who are defining this discourse also. We should recognize that and use that to or actively, you know, accurately develop a sense of where this discourse actually is. Again, I think one of the problems with this crowd is the notion that a particular person or a particular anecdote is then thus representative. I think that we have to be holistic in understanding how discourse actually works and not thinking that one particular person saying something is then representative of everybody else, right? I do think, and I've written about this, and I've given chapter and verse of examples of this, of people who criticize progressive identity politics and then say, not just that I disagree with this person or I don't like that view, but this person's adoption of this view is going to lead to the gulags. It is equivalent to Stalinism. It is incompatible, as Jonathan Chait said, with liberal democratic society. I think that is wild. We have in Harper's letter the claim that liberal expression is becoming daily more constrained. I think that is an ahistorical claim that has absolutely nothing to do with the progression of speech in American society, right? But we have all these kinds of wild generalizations happening on top of issues that I think are deeply complicated. You say that uh, there are people whose views are aligned 19 out of 20 with people at major institutions, but they have this one little view that shouldn't be a big deal and, and shouldn't be considered bigoted that prevents them from, from speaking freely or, or wherever it is. But that's a matter of perspective, right? People are going to disagree, again, about what bigotry is and the implications for a particular opinion are going to be. I don't think it makes sense for people to say, well, if you disagree with me on that 20th issue, that means that you're a liberal who opposes open discourse. I think that's silly. I don't think that's a, a productive way to have a conversation. Well, no, no. It's, I'm not saying that if you disagree with me on that 20th issue, you're against liberal discourse. I'm saying that if you think that for disagreeing on that 20th issue, you should be fired or you're making my workspace un, unsafe. It depends on what the 20th issue is, right? Well, that's... That's what I was going to, what, what Osita just said is what I was going to say with so many of this. It depends. Like when Osita laid out the broad contours of the Blake Neff firing, my thought was, well, it depends what those things said in private channels was. And the 20th of the 20 opinions held, I kept thinking about J.K. Rowling, who certainly agrees with most of liberalism on things and then has this one carve out for her opinions on trans rights. And then we could get into, okay, is the pushback on her... Is it, you know, canceling her or is it spirited, vocal, extremely impassioned pushback that she should be able to take and isn't being canceled? Well, so first of all, when we're talking about Neff, it's not the 20th out of 20 issues. I mean, no, no, no. Neff was more what why I brought that 
Neff was an example of it all depends on what the specifics are. So when Osita was saying, remember, he laid out a scenario where a person said certain things in private channels. I was just thinking it depends what those certain things are. That Neff is not the, the 20th out of 20 views. But it illustrates, it illustrates how difficult it is. That's my point. It's very easy to say, well, a racist person should get to keep their job. People disagree about what racism is, right? And so you can have this broad, abstract conversation about speech, but functionally, what is actually in question is not speech or liberalism. I think the people who are derided as illiberal, or people who are derided as people who don't care about free speech do. They just disagree and draw their lines on these particular questions in these particular cases in different places than Yasha might or Jesse Singal might or any other of the other people in this discourse might. And for drawing that line in a different place, the, the, the charge against them is not just why I disagree with you about where that line should be, but that the act of drawing a line for you signals that you are opposed to the fundamental principles undergirding our society, which I think is ridiculous. Another thing that I want to point out about this, this, one other thing I should, I should, I should say just, just before you, you start again, because you made a point about narrowness that I think is critical. And, and this idea that we should be as, as, as open as possible to as many perspectives as possible within a particular boundary, right? And one of the guidelines that you seem to imply should govern this boundary is, well, if there are people out in the country who we need to understand and reach out to, you can't exclude them and you can't exclude them from the discourse. You can't sort of ignore those opinions and brush them away. 48% of this country is doggedly supportive of the president of the United States. I'm not aware of very many people who either signed that Harper's letter or involved in persuasion who would declare themselves outright supporters of Donald Trump. I don't really see this as a discourse that is aimed at elevating those people and saying that those people deserve 40% of the uh, op-ed space at the New York Times or a much more substantial percent of the op-ed space at the New York Times. There, there's a level, there's a, a, a range of views in this country today about basic political questions that is absolutely blacklisted from major institutions and that absolutely no one is interested in having uh, more adequately represented. And I think that the proof in the pudding is the fact that these free discourse efforts don't seem very interested in including those people or those perspectives at all. So, so we're now getting into caricature. I mean, the idea that I in any way argued for you know, if uh, 48 or rather, according to my latest uh, information, about 40 percent of the U.S. population support Donald Trump. Uh, thankfully, it's less than 48 at this point. Um, then we should have 40 percent of a column interest in The New York Times be given to Trump supporters or something like that uh, is a mechanistic view of uh, what opinion should look like. But I don't believe it. And by the way, one of the problems that we get if we uh, hermetically seal our own progressive spaces off to a lot of the other opinions is where we uh, insufficiently understand that 40 or what would used to be 48% of a population to actually know how to manage to persuade many of them to join us in the uh, endeavor of building a more just society, which is incredibly important if we actually want to remedy some of those uh, injustices. But I think the fundamental distinction, Osita, between you and me is whether we are thinking about uh, you know, discourse and critiques of various members of a discourse, use this term discourse, uh, I think, about 10 times in this conversation, or whether we're talking about the kind of institutions and rules that we need in order to make a very diverse society work better. The question to me is, what would a healthy, robust, left-of-center set of publishing and political spaces look like that are able to debate the world truthfully, 
understand how we can actually remedy injustices in this country and set us up to persuade many of our fellow citizens to join us in the endeavor of actually doing that. And no matter how much you sort of cite different examples, uh, there is ultimately, I think, a pretty stark difference between a world in which people, as very many people now feel, uh, have a sense that they have to uh, very closely adhere to orthodoxy on 20 different issues, that when they fail to affirm the orthodoxy, that not only earns them a lot of criticism of that particular point of view, which is perfectly fine, but gets them expelled from those spaces altogether, makes other people tell them that they are bad human beings that shouldn't really be part of the discourse. And I think when that chilling effect takes over and we wind up in uh, a society in which uh, we, we can't actually talk honestly uh, to each other and for those of us who have platforms to our readers and listeners, that is a very big problem. Now, that doesn't mean that I think uh, people who express uh, you know, extreme bigoted or racist views should be hired by the New York Times. Uh, it doesn't mean that within civil society there aren't limits to whom I would have over for dinner or to uh, whom I would publish in Persuasion, uh, my new venture. All of those things are taken for granted. But I think anybody who looks at these publications at the moment and who listens to how many writers and journalists who are most ensconced in those milieus express their fear about deviating from orthodoxy should grow a little bit concerned about whether we're having uh, the most honest, the, the healthiest debates uh, and about whether they're being told the truth in the publications they, they read and listen to. And, you know, no point about Fox News or NAF is going to dispel that concern for me. And I don't think it's going to uh, dispel that concern for many of the listeners of this podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think that what all of that functionally amounts to is that when Yasha or people who are engaged with this project, this idea that progressive identity politics is undermining liberal institutions. When they make decisions about who should or shouldn't be allowed into the discord or allowed or published by a newspaper or given a spot at a university, you can rely on them to be judicious and keepers of the liberal faith. But when progressives say that the person who disagrees with me on the 20th position is, you know, wrong in some morally important way. Those people are being unreasonable. Those people, you should say to yourself, those people are, are making, you know, there's a narcissism of small differences there, and any reasonable person can say that on the basis of that 20th view, progressives should be more than welcome to have that person participate in the discourse on the basis of the other views that they hold. Right? There, there's, there's people who are allowed and should be trusted to make difficult decisions about what is or isn't right and what is or isn't worth discussing. And that class of people does not include people who think, well, that 20th issue is actually very, very important and we should take it seriously. We haven't been taking it seriously before. Again, this isn't about you know, a, a bad faith particular set of actors. I think that the, the ideas themselves, I think, are, are suspect here because there's, there's a difference in your willingness to apply them Universally, I think it's tremendously important for people who say to themselves, well, we need to have an open discourse and have all kinds of views represented so we can understand what's happening in the rest of the country. And, and we can learn to, uh, you know, to rebut those arguments instead of shunting them aside. I think it's important for those people to take seriously that a large share of the country supports the president of the United States and to include them in their editorial projects and their projects on discourse. And if they don't, you should be suspicious about what their actual priorities are because they're not walking the walk. 
I personally think it is okay to have ideological institutions. I think that functionally institutions like the New York Times, the Washington Post, they present themselves as nonpartisan, but that in itself is a kind of value. Like these are organizations that are structured around a set of principles that people are going to fight about internally and externally. I don't think it is fair or productive to the discourse to say that certain people who come to a different place than you on those principles are then engaging in a way that is hostile to liberalism, which is, again, is the charge that it gets made over and over and over again. Okay, we're going to leave it there. I want to ask one last thing, which is this. Lily Loughborough in Slate raised this in a useful way. Political discourse has been warped less because of cancel culture or illiberalism than by the way social media platforms have been poisoned like wells that poison us in turn. She's saying it's not a difference that is cropped up with liberalism. The trend is really a function of Twitter. It's really a function of how we're doing the arguing, not that the arguers have different worldviews or change their minds. Do either of you think that there is any validity to that? I, I, if I could jump in and say, I, I think that is absolutely at the very heart of what is actually happening. Just again, to go to the Harper's letter, there's a sentence in there, the free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society is daily becoming more constricted. That to me is a facially absurd claim. I think that what people are concerned about as cancel culture, or whatever you want to call it, is actually a function of speech being more radically free now than ever before. People can speak to a broader range of people, more people than they actually anticipate or are prepared to handle than ever before. And everybody now has a capacity to respond or call for action. It's a technological shift that has both radically expanded the reach of speech and also radically leveled the discursive playing field. And the consequences of that are going to be complicated, and we should talk about that. But the discussion that we're having is not about reforming social media institutions and social media networks to see how we might product, more productively facilitate discourse on them. That would be a great discussion to have. The discussion we're having is about whether people have gotten worse in some way. There, there's a cultural pathologizing that is happening where we're saying to ourselves, people on one particular side of some of these debates are bad in a way that is now new and meaningful and that we have to sort of take uh, measure of. I don't really think that's true at all. I think that we're seeing people work through in, in a very messy and difficult way the consequences of the way that information spreads now, and the way that information is kept now uh, on the internet. You can pay, compare it, frankly, to the, the printing press, a total revolution in speech and the spread of information, right? But precisely because so many people try and succeed in reaching mass audiences, you have people being persecuted for speech that might not have been persecuted before. You have entire infrastructures of censorship built up to suppress speech that weren't there or weren't as large before. But would it have made sense to say, on balance, that free expression became more constrained? No, I don't think so, on balance. I think things are complicated. And I think it's, it's interesting that you know, people, are, I think, are opportunistically oriented towards whether they want to make the cultural diagnosis or whether they want to sort of blame the things that happen on the internet on internet dynamics, right? If somebody is criticized by progressives on Twitter and a pile-on ensues, and maybe harassment that the people doing the initial criticism hadn't intended, people generally don't have a problem saying, look, this is evidence of bad ideology or woke religion, or whatever else. But when Emily Vanderwerf is, van is harassed for the letter she wrote about Matt Iglesias signing the Harper's letter, people come out and say, well, look, that's unfortunate, but it wasn't our intent. You can't really blame us for that. The internet can get out of your hands and people should understand that. I think people should understand that in all cases. We just spent several years bringing to national attention 
what random college freshmen and sophomores were doing and publishing in their school newspapers on cultural appropriation, right? With few exceptions, I think Daniel Dresdner was one of them. I don't remember there being that much concern about the impact internet shaming and pylons was going to have on their lives. But when Washington Post singles out some woman for wearing blackface as a party, everyone says instantly, oh, that's not news. That's terrible. You shouldn't dump on somebody making a mistake like that in a major newspaper. And I agree. I just don't think, and I think people who watch this discourse understand, I don't think that these standards are being consistently applied across the board. As much as people like to make broad general statements about liberalism and speech and expression, I think the people who follow the discourse, I use that word because I think it's a useful word, the people who follow these discussions understand what's really going on here ideologically. Well, again, I think we're raising the difference between two very importantly different things. Uh, there is a lot of freewheeling discussion on the internet, and that's perfectly fine. Osita, you're sometimes ratioed, I'm sometimes ratioed, everybody who's on Twitter a lot sometimes has days when people are shouting on them, and that's not a very pleasant feeling, but that is absolutely part of the vibrant public sphere that we thankfully have and enjoy in the United States. And so this idea that the people who signed the letter were really just, you know, hurt at being criticized on Twitter and they want people to stop criticizing them on Twitter uh, just makes no sense. The question is whether what happens on Twitter then leads to your company firing you, to whether people start to self-censor because they understand that all of these real-world institutions are so subject to the potential dynamics of Twitter that... Uh, people will punish them or fire them in real life uh, because they express an opinion that deviates in one small bit from the received wisdom in, within their institutions. That, to me, is the issue. Let people criticize, let people beat up on each other on Twitter. Um, it's not always edifying. It's not clear to me that Twitter is making my life better, that it's giving me joy rather than not. But you know what? Uh, that's my own decision. I don't have to be on Twitter um, and if I seek out Twitter and see people beating up on me, that's just fine. Um, uh, but when people say, you write a letter that I disagree with, you sign a letter that I disagree with, and that creates such a hostile work environment for me that you know, perhaps my employer, by implication, has an obligation to look into that. Um, if you actually start trying not to criticize people for the expression of their speech, but to shut down the ability to express their beliefs without losing their jobs. For as innocuous an idea as saying we believe deeply in American progress towards racial and other justice, and we also think that free speech is the best way of achieving that, then I think you've lost the plot. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people in the last weeks that have been trying to justify that lost plot. So I want to thank you both for joining me. Asita Wanevu and Yasha Monk of The New Republic and Persuasion, respectively. I really appreciate having the discussion because it, it was a discussion I was desperate to have. And I think a lot of people will be eager to hear. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Margaret Kelly, Daniel Schrader, and the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, Alicia Montgomery. If I told you on some private Slack channel that someone said something so outrageous and beyond the pale that everyone would want his head, would you want to know what that thing was? Or would you figure, or would you just figure it was Daniel angrily denouncing anyone who doesn't use European butter in a croissant recipe? The Gist 
My favorite moment was when the charge of illiberalism or shutting down debate was said to be so burdensome as to infringe on open debate. It was kind of a reverse Beetlejuice. Um, Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.